1: It is the attitude of the player, not their skills, that is the biggest factor in determining whether you win or lose. Is a quote by the renowned coach Harry Sinden of the team Canada Ice Hockey side who played against the Soviet Union and were victorious in a thrilling and come from behind eight game summit series. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today, another proud Canadian who challenged orthodoxy on the international stage as global managing partner of one of the world's premier management consulting firms. Our guest today is Dominic Barton, BBM, who is chair of Rio Tinto and chair of Leapfrog Investments. Dominic is a senior advisor and partner at AI investment firm Radical Ventures, the chancellor of the University of Waterloo and an adjunct professor at Xinguang University. From 2019 to 2021, Dominic was the ambassador of Canada to the People's Republic of China. From 2009 to 2018, Dominic was the global managing partner of McKinsey & Company. He was chairman of Tech Resources, a non-exec director at the Singtel Group and at Investor AB, and was an advisory board member of the Allian Group. Dominic previously served as chair of Standard Chartered's International Advisory Council, chair of the Canadian Minister of Finance's Advisory Council on Economic Growth, and chair of the Seoul International Business Advisory Council. Dominic was a senior trustee of the Brookings Institution, a member of the Singapore Economic Development Board's International Advisory Council, and a member of the boards of Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City and the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada. He has co-authored four books and received eight honorary doctorates as well as a Rhodes Scholarship. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in China, Canada, and South Korea, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners, board and executive search firm. After growing up in Uganda and Canada, and later studying as a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford, Dominic recounts how he joined McKinsey in his early 20s and relished the responsibility of advising senior executives and captains of industry as a junior consultant. Following our chance meeting in Australia with then Treasurer Paul Keating in 1989, who urged him to relocate to Asia, Dominic scaled the heights of McKinsey in the region and ultimately became global managing partner for nearly a decade. A common theme in the discussion is Dominic's belief in a renewed form of capitalism and the future engine rooms of growth in the 21st century. He also provides insight in relation to today's geopolitical landscape, such as the rise of China, the place for the United States in the global order, and the formation of new trading blocs in the developing world. Dominic also asserts that we are living in extraordinary times, with climate change heralding the biggest reallocation of capital. In human history. Finally, Dominic closes with his views on best practice leadership and the willingness to unleash talent. So sit back and enjoy the dawn of new thinking. Dominic, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, you've declared that we're entering a new form of capitalism. How does that theory stack up, bearing in mind what's happening on the world stage at the moment? We've got Israel, we've got Palestine. We've got broader issues around the Middle East. We've got China, Taiwan. We've got other plays. We've got Russia, Ukraine. Does it stack up, Dominic?
0: Well, I, I think, first of all, we're, there's no doubt we're living in extraordinary times. I mean, there are so many forces that are at play. As you, you mentioned, climate change would be the biggest reallocation of capital in human history all happening in the next 30 years we've got Hmm. the rise or re-rise of asia in terms of the of its economic significance that doesn't downplay the importance of the us which i believe will remain the number one economy for decades to come but most of the growth is now coming from asia and that will continue you've got a geopolitical shift the rise of china and the fragmentation of kind of the international order And then we've got technology that just is relentlessly changing. It doesn't care about geopolitics or climate change or anything, it's just changing. Artificial intelligence just being one of kind of at least 13 different technologies, nano. I could we could go on about that. The way capitalism's changed is in a couple of fronts. One is that I think the there's been a shift in capitalism over the last forty or fifty years. it 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 has become more short-term narrow and less owner like, which is not helpful for the system. And that's why I I'm a believer in long term capitalism. And when I was at McKinsey, we, you know, we would get called a lot of nasty names from time to time. But one I kind of liked was we were known as the Jesuits of capitalism. We sort of I looked at that a lot. And if you go back into the, if I could call it early stages capitalism, think about Adam Smith. He, he was not a short term, profit maximizer he was a long-term inclusive owner like capitalist and i think that's what we need to move back so that's what i meant, long-winded answer of saying a, a capitalism has to go back to what it was before and given all those changes i mentioned particularly the geopolitics technology and so forth the idea that Capitalism will trump everything is wrong, and I think there was a feeling of that in the mid '80s, like you know, early '90s. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The to me the the peak of it was when George Soros took on the Bank of England, and I think it was 1992. I won't. So to have a hedge fund manager basically bet against the Bank of England, this established policy making, yeah, to and
1: and that won. was
0: kind of like. Yeah. Capitalism trumps. Like, who cares? If you're a country, you obey the capital markets, and if you don't, you do it at your risk, right? Capitalism kind of defined the way, and that's just fundamentally changed now. So, I think, I guess, I've, there's two elements to that capitalism that's shifted how it works itself, and also its its important or weight in the whole ecosystem. To use a word that's used too many times, but you know what? politics geopolitics polarization media that all has a much more important factor now than just capitalism by itself and that's changed a lot in the last since i started my business career that i started my business career in that world when capitalism was prime
1: under that sort of summary there dominic is the world gone more left than it has right and therefore, where does that play into that definition of capitalism?
0: It's a great question. I, I think it's actually gone both ways, which it's gone oh, more dear. left and right. It's polarized. We're kind of, instead of a curve, a probability curve like this, this is the, let's say, the center, where, where I think we mm. were more of in the late 80s, 90s to the early 2000s. We've kind of gone like this. The, the center's. Just completely collapsed, and we now have. I'm not a very good uh, actor here, as you can see, but we've now got we've, got we've got a big big chunk on the left and a big chunk. This polarization is unreal. So I think the left and the right are stronger. Probably the, if I was to say which has the bigger bump, at least in the well, I don't know. I'd, I'd say they're equal because it depends on the country.
1: And just on that, Dominic, from your experience which we'll come to in a second, do you think the US fully understands not just Asia, but China?
0: No, I don't. And I don't think it's just the US. I think in Canada, we in Canada, I think in Australia, I might say in the UK, we don't really understand how China works. And I don't just mean that in terms of how the Communist Party works or the governance of the system. I'm talking about the civilization, the values, you know, what matters, just how things work, the Maslowian hierarchy of needs, if you will. And we don't understand it. I've said before, I probably had three hours of education on Asia in my entire K-12 to experience. Korea has a 5,000-year history. There's lots of writing, lots of there's a ton of philosophy the way people work and, and we don't have that understanding. And that's a, that's our issue. If you will, we we need to know more. A person who actually kicked me in the ass to think about Asia, if I might say is Paul Keating. Oh, really? I, I worked, yeah, I worked in Australia in 1989 for a year. I worked in Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra each for kind of four months. It was a strange thing. And the first project I did was, with the ATO and um, I couldn't believe McKinsey did work for ta- I was kind of shocked coming it just wasn't I didn't know that but anyhow cut a long story short Paul Keating was the treasurer and we had we had three dinners they had nothing to do with the project but in the first dinner and I remember I drank a lot of wine I was yeah I was you know a project manager at McKinsey and he looked over me I didn't really know who we different people were he looked over me and he said to me if you have half a brain and i'm and and was silent he said i'm not sure you do you would do well to move to asia i went what does this have to do with it he said that's where the future is and Mm. i'm trying to encourage australians to backpack in asia not in europe he was just this push that was 89. so i i think that understanding at a earlier age is really important and we've got a big gap.
1: So where do you see the future in trade then? Because we're actually starting to see some very distinctive blocks being formed, aren't we?
0: Yeah. I don't believe globalization is going to go away. I think globalization will be there, but it'll be in a different form. It's generated so much value for consumers, for a way of life. If you think about it,
1: was that short-term, Dominic?
0: No, I think it's long-term because if you look at, you know, between the the, the economists have had some very good analysis as has Rhodium and a number of other players. If you look at the cost of consumer goods in the United States with the rise of China, I mean, it's just been, it's in the 15 to 20% drop level, like a vacuum cleaner. and And this has... A television, whatever you want to, a basic consumer good is dropped, and that's because of trade. If you stop trading, that price will go up significantly. You get you know, the inflationary costs and so forth are high. So, I think it's had a huge benefit, and I don't. I think it would be very difficult to break it down. But what has shifted is, is to your point, will I believe be more regional blocks. That's where there will be more intensive trade. So. The U.S., Canada, Mexico will be a very important region. Obviously, the Eurozone, uh, ASEAN, India, China, but also MENAP, you know, Middle East, North Africa, Pakistan, Sub-Saharan. If you think about South America, too, you know, there's a three or four countries together that will be doing much more together. So, I think as if you're a global company, you better start thinking about your positioning in these blocks. If you're a country. Thinking about your diplomatic configuration and what you're doing, you better start thinking about these blocks and, and how you interact with them uh, because they're going to have more weight than the general global system.
1: So, there's only one part of your career as the former Canadian ambassador to China. You've obviously got experience in building relationships. This is where the issue seems to be short and longer term at the moment. How does countries? Be smart about building these relationships, he? because so the blocks are there. They're getting stronger.
0: I think that uh, it, this is something that really matters to me, or I feel, or feel it's really important to me, is the fabric between countries, and it's not just the g to g level. And that, that you know, if I think about it, again, it's, a, it's sort of an iceberg. There is a government-to-government level, but there's a ton of yeah. other linkages, the business-to-business side of it, the cultural side sports academic there's a range of things and i think it's very important for us no matter what the g2g relationship looks like that we are working to deepen that fabric because it helps us have a better understanding it actually can build trust governments change when i was the ambassador in canada a couple of very simplistic observations one is that the G2G relationship was terrible. It had completely broken down. No one could communicate. The Chinese side would not respond. They were extraordinarily angry about the Meng Wanzhou situation. They felt, you know, we'd gone from this golden era, literally November 2018, the peak of relationship, 23 minister-to-minister relationships, to mid-December, nothing, like no no communication. And two Canadians being detained and all that and the trade cut you you, we've experienced this in australia too right
1: yep yeah we just had some release just recently
0: yeah yeah and so what matters is actually these relationships because for me to be able to operate there i had relationships from the time i was there in 2003 to 2009 and those relationships were really important because i could part of is figuring out how decisions get made it's not it's opaque It's an opaque system. You have to have people help you. And secondly, Canada invested a lot in a, it was the Canadian international development agency, poured in humongous amounts of money, resources to train Chinese people in healthcare, judicial system, and all of that. So... Those things that were done in the 90s, where you had vice ministers that had actually been trained at McGill, for example, or UBC or University of Toronto, they wanted to talk to Canada, even though the official relationship was bad, they felt a connection. And they were a channel, a really important channel for me to be able to talk and get things done, because I had to go informal. Formal was broken. So I went informal. And I met anyone. I would meet the local street sweeper if they would meet i I met anyone i possibly could because i you had to figure out where the channels were and those certain relationships we should be more deterministic about how we build i mean one thing just a small anecdote i remember you know when i got there a previous ambassador sent me a note It came in a you know secret pouch and all this stuff and i got it it was it came like six months after i'd been there I don't know why it took so long and i opened it up and in it it said these are 35 people you should meet right you're there now with not a criticism to my two predecessors from when i was there these were names that i w- if i was a monkey i would meet them because i was in the role and what what shocked me was for a country with a 50-year relationship is all we can say is we've got 35 and this is not a criticism of him it's a criticism of our bilateral relationship. I think that's a challenge, you know, and so one of the things I was focused on was there are 750 relationships that we need to make sure we have. And that's not just the top seven or trying to understand where they are. It's the customs officer for pork in Nanjing. That person, that's a big deal for us, right? That, and that person plays a critical role because the Chinese and the Japanese and the south they're more deterministic about it and Singaporeans that very thoughtful about these and their long term these are relationships for life they're not transactional relationships we're not used to that we we sort of you know we change the other thing i noticed we change our ambassadors every 3 to 4 years the russians are there for 12 years the singaporeans are there for 10 years the vietnamese are there for 10 to 12 years and so when you talked, I spent time with the Vietnamese ambassador. I mean, these, you know, they know China deeply. We're we're kind of flipping people, and that's not going to cut it. I think so. These relationships are extremely important, and I think they can be done in different ways. One thing, other thing, I'm actually just talking today to a group at Cambridge on this topic of the fabric, and if you look at the Soviet. That the cold the depth of the Cold War and actually the fabric that was still there. So I just looking at it from a this is from a Canadian side and also a, a US side, people felt it in Canada as a country was the hockey series that was the Canada Soviet hockey series, which did an unbelievable amount. It was an incredibly tough series and because Canada thinks we're the best in the world at hockey and all of a sudden these Russians came and kicked our ass, and it was a shock. And it ended up, Canada won it in the final game in Moscow. It was like a seven-game series, and we won it in Moscow. And people, Canadians, or any Canadian who was around at that time will remember it viscerally. And there's a, actually a relationship with the Russian people, not the Soviets, but there's a kind of a, oh, yeah. a link. We There was a joint Arctic research mission that was done on, I, believe it or not, ice melting between Canada and Soviet scientists, that became a channel. We probably wouldn't do it now, but that that became a channel. There were ministers in Canada that traveled to the Soviet Union at that time that no one knew about in terms of just the connection. So the US and China worked on polio eradication in the real depths of the, you know, eradicated it. There are things like that, that I think, even in times of extreme stress, we should be connecting. That that I think is important to do it. And we need to be more deliberate, and we need to have younger people do it.
1: So we're leaving too much on the table, are we?
0: Yeah, way too much. With these blocks, for example, Africa. Africa is going to be, if I was Paul Keating now having a conversation with me now in 2029, 20, I think he would probably say You have half a brain, and he'd probably still say, "I'm I'm not sure you do." And then he'd say, "You should be in Africa." I think that's what he would say. Just because over the next twenty to thirty years, that that place to the youngest demographic, it has to transform, and we don't know enough about it. We call it Africa. We don't recognize that. There's a talk about relationships. There's a lot we can be doing in Australia, in Canada. In the UK, in the US, the people China is doing a lot in Africa and has been at an order of magnitude more significance than than all of us combined.
1: Well, I think a lot further ahead than all of us combined as well. Exactly. This is a uh, a leadership discussion, and if we stand back and look at the look at the world at the moment, are we seeing strong versus weak leadership? And as a result of some weak leadership, are we seeing? some very bad outcomes?
0: Yeah, I'm worried about the leadership. I, I think we don't have enough leadership. I think, I think it, being a leader, especially a political leader in these times is very, very difficult because of the force, forces we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. One is a polarization. You know, you've got a look at the United States, but it's happening in every country. There's polarization i feel it is in australia you have a better view than me but i I think it's happening there it's in the uk and that makes it very difficult to lead because your base isn't as we don't have as much common ground so i i think there's an element of the context that makes it harder to lead i don't i don't want to cut slack for (laughs) leaders but i think that's an element we have to think about but then i do think there has to be more of a long-term view on things and we don't have that we have a very short-term sense of leadership. The person who probably has the most long-term leadership is President
1: Xi. So those people who are supposed to be followers of the leaders, are they turning off because of that? So in Australia, for example, we go to we vote every three years. A year out, they're electioneering. So two years to run a country. Um, very, very short-termist. So am I going to be engaged or am I going to turn off?
0: When you said that, I was also thinking about Congress in the U.S., right? Every two years. Yeah, yeah it's at the just, moment. It's, yeah. We have a lot of fundamental issues that will not be done in a quarter. That gets to the capitalism point. You don't transform a company in a quarter. You can't measure that. Some, you know, things may go down before they go up. I think in a country, you know, we've got fundamental education issues. You can't fix that in a term. We've got healthcare-related issues. You can't fix that in a term. We've got fundamental manufacturing. I think this is an area that we. In all of our, in, in Australia, in Canada, the United States, the UK, we've hollowed out our manufacturing. Interesting, the longer term, Singapore, China, Malaysia, they have a kind of a belief that you have to have a minimum part of your economy be manufacturing. And in, U- in China, for example, it will never go below 25% of GDP. That's just like a rule. And I think that's, there's rationale to that, and we should be thinking about. Uh, those things, but that's more. Lo- we have, we do have a, we have a lack of long-term thinking. I do think our systems, our election systems, exacerbate that significantly.
1: Leads me on to the next one, Dominic. You're no stranger to walking into some troubled times, as, even as the role as ambassador. That was obviously challenging. People were being detained. Yeah. And did the work through that. You've had some interesting times at the role at the helm of McKinsey, and obviously Rio has got a big influence across the globe. Bearing all that in mind and what you've seen and what we just talked about from the political landscape, but to you, and you've advised many of them, what is genuine leadership then?
0: It's a really deep question. So let me just try and break down how I would think about it. What One is I think a leader has to have a vision or a kind of direction about where they want the organization to go. And I think it's got to be long-term. You know, One of the Big reasons I was attracted to Rio Tinto is it is a 20 to 30 year time frame company. And I mean, think like mining companies are. They they that they have to think in that time frame. So I I love that. It's because you it just changes your bearing. So but you have I think if you're a leader, you have to have some sort of long-term view. But I also believe it's something I learned from a former finance minister in Canada. I used to, when I was at McKinsey, I always ask leaders. know what would be the one thing you'd teach your twenty-one-year-old self if you could do it again? And this guy said, "I would have learned to have had a microscope in one eye and a telescope in the other, and not get a headache." And I said, "What what the hell do you mean by that?" And he said, let's think about it." He goes, "I've got a, I'm the finance minister. I have to have a long-term view of the competitive positioning of Canada over a twenty to thirty-year period. At the same time, I won't use his word. Crap happens, right? Things happen immediately." you know, and I've got to be able to react to that. But most leaders, he said, are either one or the other. You need to be both. So I think there's this notion of you have a vision, but you're also, you're agile in terms of reacting or dealing with things, but you, you've got to have both. You're not, you certainly are not short-term. The other dimension I'd want to get into, I think it's more about the character of the leader, the who you are than what you do. And we spend a lot of time advising leaders on what they need to do, what, you know how they should spend their time. think about your organization structure, think about your strategy, manage your risk, think about your leadership team. Those are all really important. What we don't think enough about is who you are, and this is elements of selflessness. It's very easy as a leader to get more Selfish thinking you know everything, but you become a machine that's working so hard you have the machine has to be serviced you you need to get whatever you need to keep the thing going and you get you can get into this you can become detached from reality so this self selflessness groundedness is an important element of character, and people know if you're bullshitting or not whether you're real or not so that's a but that's really important to stay that way I think the second is is your i'd call your ability to absorb you know a lot of leaders get into trouble because you get you're tired you're you're working hard there's just a lot of flack coming at you and you lose it you know you say something inappropriate you overreact sometimes you just part of a job of a leader is to absorb what you're you're doing i think your nose for people it's what you you know extraordinarily well amongst many other things you've got to know when you're looking for I and mean, this is where the people is and one one just again sort of sidebar on this i'm sorry i wander around a lot in the conversation but one one of the last books i wrote when i was at mckinsey was was on talent and i'm embarrassed to say that because it's actually the most important thing if, if i tell my 21 year old self again it's just focus on the people take people out faster, move people up faster, spend time with, you know, that, and I remember it was Larry Fink was one guy who spoke to, you know, probably one of the, leading one of the biggest, the biggest investment firm in the world. You think about an investor. And I remember him telling me once, I, I he said, he said, Dom, you need to think about me all the time as a pig who's looking for truffles. Those truffles are people. So wherever I go, my no, I'm looking for talent. Yeah, that's what's on the paper of what I do. But actually, I'm looking for talent and I'm focused on talent. So that's a capability in leaders. You need to learn that and figure. And that to me is a character thing. I think people like, you, you like working with people or their objects by which you get things done. So I could go on, but it's this long term, short term, more an emphasis on long term. And this character is a whole bunch of other elements in character that I think make you an effective leader or not. And we don't spend really any time focused on the character. We, we focus too much. We don't spend as much time on the who. We spend all the time on the what. And, that, and I think we have to rebalance
1: that. Do you think really good talent is allowed to flourish? And what I mean by that, I, I had an interesting experience not long ago where a senior executive was asked to go into an MBA you know, quick, quick course, did it. And at the end uh, for the, the final evening was asked by the lecturers, what, what are your thoughts? And there was the international audience there. And uh, what did you learn? And, and uh, put his hand up and said, look, thoroughly enjoyed it, but it's not going to change a thing. And everyone was silent. Why is that? Well, I've, look, I've absorbed so much to use your words. I've taken on so much, but I'm going to go back to the machine. And when I go back to the machine... The boss is going to say, "Just do what I tell you to do and keep going." You know, your organization, McKinsey's, has evolved, 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 but there is something being lost out there on that talent, is there not? Your
0: question about are we unleashing talent? I think it's a great. I think the answer is no, we're not. I think there's a way more potential, and there's another dimension that we don't look at. There's there's many. That's a whole different topic, like what measures do we look at with people and organizations that we should look at that we don't? And and this potential, I think, is a huge one. And I'm, I'm a true believer in that if you chuck people metaphorically in a swimming pool without them knowing how to swim, most people figure it out and they grow. They grow dramatically. Short answer to your question is, I think they're we do not unleash talent like we should. And, and I, your notion of that fellow going into the machine, I, I totally, that resonates. And I think this is what organizations can get, do much more of, give younger people a chance. I mentioned that theme, right? That th- this was a common theme of all the CEOs. I think I met 3,500 in the time in McKinsey and I would ask that question about the 21 year old self and where it is, whether you were in Asia you know, North America, Europe, it didn't, whatever, I don't care what industry, people was the core focus of what people would have, how they would have spent their time differently. And as I said, there were three elements of that. One was take people out faster, because I think there's, blo- you know, it's very hard to do that. It's uncomfortable. It's not, and so people delay it and it, it blocks and, 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 and I think can destroy organizations and second give young people more of a chance earlier throw them into the swimming pools put them in into into things and i this is where i think they're in today's world too we have to think about a different organization design to give people more space this the idea that organizations are pyramids by definition makes it more machine like and i think what you you got to try and do while still having controls and so forth is flattened to to allow people to be able to have the room to move. And, and not only would I say, by the way, it's not only young talent that are un, not unleashed enough should be given way more opportunity early. And I mean, big opportunity early. I also think we focus too much on degrees. And back, you know, this person went to you this university and did i excuse i couldn't give a shit about that i one of the last things i did when i was in mckinsey i was i would try and challenge orthodoxies right just and i because we we orthodoxies are what make you disappear as an organization if you're not careful so you 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 may not want to change them but you should challenge them the only one i would not want to challenge in mckinsey is values that you you have a there's a way you work what you believe in, if you will, but everything else should be put on the table. And then one of the last things I focused on was, we are going to hire five people with no university degrees. And that freaked people out. They were like, what are you talking about? You know, no university? I said, no, there's talent out there that, and they said, well, what will our clients say if someone shows up? I said, the client's not going to look at their CV. They're going to, is this person a leader? Are they, do they have an idea? and i'm happy to say that three of the five that were hired are partners so again i think we have these young the background of the person it's about exp- give people a chance and experiences take risk if i reflect on my own career for you know whatever i've learned and done is because i've taken risk people have basically chucked me in a pool and it's that's where the the growth is just being dramatic because it, it's just it's like it's like just going into an accelerator. So when I moved from actually that experience in Australia, that one year in Australia as a project transformed my life. I mean, I, literally, that was the Paul Keating kind of you got to move. You it, it changed my people. Uh, the other thing I took away is I and I'm generalizing. it be very careful of this. But the in Australia, the kind of level of Understanding of microeconomics, like you don't mess with people. People understand economics deeply. There's kind of this rig, like an intellectual rigor. I felt it was was a different, it was like a wake up call for me. And then when I went to Korea, I all of a sudden became the office manager at like I was 32 years old. I didn't speak the language, I had no relationships. The translation of McKinsey in Korean, it sat with the sound. sounded like Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, it, we had nothing. And then we had a financial crisis, and it was growth on steroids, and I, I learned so much, then moving to China. So these are these moves or experiences or what I think honestly I could have been again, it doesn't matter who I was. it was the experiences that transformed me. And so we need to give more young people experiences to grow the hell out of them that's how I feel
1: you talked about experience you talked about values you want to share a little bit about your background when you grew up so you were you born in Uganda is that correct yeah and there was a guy and there was a guy called Idi Men floating around in a few years time and dad was a missionary wasn't he
0: yeah he, that's right I was there till I was seven and oh, okay. when I was five it was 1967 he Idi Amin, he was actually he hadn't gone crazy at that time he was kind of a well-regarded like brigadier general and he took over our house because there were terrorists in the like jungle literally where we lived like i was going to say gorillas but i mean you know the different type of gorilla the terrorist type of gorilla so and they took over our house i remember my dad said to me he said we're all going to live in your room now for the next couple of weeks and i said what no we're not he goes no we are because the army is taking over the house And i said Oh, no, I don't. I like, said, well, you don't really have a choice. We're, and Idi Amin had this Land Rover, which I loved Land Rovers, and I used to play in the back of it, and I was told not to. And to cut a long story short, one day the Land Rover started driving off while I was in the back, so I hid for a bit. I remember this vividly because then I thought, okay, that's not going to work because this car is driving away. So I literally picked up the blanket and then banged on the glass, you know to the cab in the front and all i remember was this big head black head with white teeth the gut because i think he was a bit shocked that there was someone like a stowaway in his car and he pulled over and he was wearing this incredibly like a crisp white uniform and he picked me up by my short i was just wearing shorts picked me up by the shorts like a starfish put me in the front And I I remember I couldn't really see out the side. I just looked at him because he was a big, huge guy in this white crisp thing. He drove back, came up the front. My parents were obviously freaked out and I, and he came in the front. He walked around the front, picked me up again, like a starfish, and then sort of dropped me down in front of my dad. And he said, you should be very careful where your boy plays. Yeah, right. And, And then he went back into the car and drove off and I, I, about it was 2017. I got a, i got my Ugandan passport. I have it here from from Museveni. Um, I went because he wanted to give me. A, I said, you know, you're born here. You should have a passport. He gave me. He gave me this passport. And he was wearing all his military stuff. And he he'd heard this story, I guess, because he said, he says, is it true you met Idi Amin? And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, I think you can be the only person to say that Idi Amin. Saved you, you know, as opposed to killed you, (laughs) supposed to killed you. It was a because he obviously came in to take clean up things there, but um, anyhow, yeah, sorry, that was so. Africa was has always been in the blood, so to speak. I that so, Africa, then we moved to Toronto and then Vancouver, that's where I really grew up in a farming community just outside of Vancouver, a dairy farming community, and um, I always wanted to travel I always wanted to we we didn't have enough you know money to really do that sort of we do one trip but I, I really wanted to travel that's and I remember going to Vancouver once a year was a big trip I remember this was a huge deal to go in you know go into Vancouver so I was yearning to get out if you will you know really ever since then I I've been living around the world
1: well how much did your mind change you talk about travel you did travel to England and you studied Road, yeah. road scholarship how much did your mind change or develop during that course of time
0: that was another one of those kind of being dropped in the pool it, it that it changed for a couple of reasons one is the method of teaching was fundamentally different than it was in canada where i would argue you know you take the teacher in the university is giving you know a lecture you take notes and you try and remember what they said in the exam and you kind of you know not need the books you read and To me, that I remember the instant of kind of the dawn of a new way of thinking about it. I was with my colleague who was from Arkansas. He was a Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas. He and I were in this meeting our supervisor. And the supervisor said, look, I want you to write three essays for next week, right? And he gave the topics. And he said, so I'll see you later. And And I went, hang on a second. What, you're not going to teach us about this stuff? He goes, no. And I said, well, what what should we read? Do, do you have at least like a reading list you're going to give us? And he goes, no, I don't. And I said, I literally said to him, what's your job? What exactly are you doing here? And he said, that's not a question you should be asking because I'm the supervisor. You need to figure out what the books are to read and you better figure out the right books because if you don't, your essay will be poor and that'll be a consequence for you so you have to figure it out you got to learn something so it was learning how to learn it literally was and there was no internet back in like i'm an old guy right so it was i was like what the hell the topic I, I couldn't google it so you had to you had to just basically figure out how to research and that way of thinking and learning was fundamentally different
1: really he, he's doing his job he's teaching you to think
0: that's exact that's exactly i totally agree and that that, i just i just didn't know that you don't i think part of the things in life is you just don't know what you don't know right and that was that was just a shocker to me and i i actually got upset with him right i I literally was like what what the hell do you do like but
1: that's an interesting perspective too dominic not knowing what you don't know doesn't seem to faze you
0: no i well i think this is where i think we have to be curious and, and absorb like don't if someone says something to you that you find, maybe you might even find offensive or just before reacting, think about it. Go, wonder why they're saying that. Maybe there is something you don't. So, so I I just think that, and this is, gets back to your earlier question too, about what we know about China or what we know about Asia. There's so much we don't, we don't even know what we don't know.
1: All right. So you start on your career. I know you spent a very short period of time with Rothschild and then- McKinsey, why'd you make the move to McKinsey?
0: Uh, I made the move mainly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I really wanted to work at the World Bank or the IMF. I didn't even get a response. I, I applied, I didn't even get no, I got nothing, zero, nada. And McKinsey, I had no idea who McKinsey was. I mean, I, I honestly thought it was some cult or something because it, it and, and to be with you. I only went to the introductory session because I heard that they served free alcohol. And so I thought, I'll just have a good drink. I'll have a, you know, it'll be good. So I went and, and the presentation was terrible. You know, as people stood up, I joined McKinsey and I do this. I was kind of like, these are not people that I want to work. Like it didn't click. And then I, I didn't have a job and I didn't, and then they kept saying, this is a place you can come and you can figure out what you want to do. And it was really through the interview process that was I met people maybe that were more like me than what I thought McKinsey people were like. There was a guy who was a, I'm not like this, but he, but it was sort of, he was not a MBA type of person. This was a person with a, he was a nuclear physicist and he was a business guy. And I remember saying, how did you, what are you doing? And he said, it doesn't matter. Let me just tell you what I'm working on. And then he, what he was working on fascinated me. And And he said, just come here for two years and you'll, you don't have to stay. You don't, we're not trying to keep you actually. If you don't, you you made a lot of people leave after two years, they kind of figure out what they want to do. And this is kind of like a graduate school. That's how we positioned it. So I, that's what I thought. And I genuinely thought I would leave after two years, but I, I loved the work and the learning. Again, it was a, you know, being put in a, machine that just is going to be formally and informally just every day you're learning you're learning with clients you're there's very formal we had a mini mba and again classic mckinsey style you didn't it wasn't two years or what it was one month and it was intense beyond but you know accounting marketing operations and that was done religiously and so and i could see how how it was changing me. But probably the most important thing, again, was mentorship. You know, it wasn't, and by the way, it wasn't the McKinsey people. So, there were some great mentors there. It was actually clients. So, I learned that whole point about people without a degree. There was the guy, the guy who used to run Dial Corporation, John Teets, who I loved this guy. Classic American, my image of a CEO, kind of, you know, 55-year-old, kind of a tough, like a Jack Welch type, like a tough-ass sort of guy. And he and I was so naive. I would all, you know, McKin- on the can on McKinsey, it says you serve top clients. So I I've been in McKinsey for six months and I didn't see myself advising CEOs. And I was kind of shocked. Like, you imagine how idiot. And so I would tell the guy, I said, How I've been here six months and I'm not advising any CEOs. And I remember the senior partner was like, This guy's a whack job. So he brought me to a meeting with this guy, John T to his weight like eight levels above. And the first thing this guy john Teats does i remember he, he was sitting at the edge of it like it was classic business thing like a long table he's at the end of the table he'd broken his back before like so he he was and he's but he was a body like a tough guy so he was sort of on an angle like this and he looked at me and he was shocked to see stuff because i i looked really young like that and bob felton's senior partner he goes he, he goes bob he goes who's this Smurf you brought from San Francisco? Cause he, all, Bob was from San Francisco and he got and I said, what, and he's, and he didn't even look at me and he looked at me he says, does the guy even know how to shave? Like he, and he went and I was like, shit, how am I going to counsel this guy? Right. And then in the meeting, halfway through, I was telling him about, cause I figured out this route profitability because for this to get, they owned Greyhound bus lines. That was just a small division. So we were the. So I'm really proud of this work. I'd figured out the root profitability. And I was telling him, he was asking, he's going, oh, really? Is that right? I, I didn't realize he was actually, te- he was like, that's fascinating. And then he went like this. And the, the vice president, to my, who I knew actually quite well, he said, hey, Dom, when John does that, that means he's going to fire someone. And I was like, oh, holy shit. This guy's gonna-. And sure enough, John Teeth goes, time out. And you, Smurf, you're coming with me. And he took me into his room and he just beat the crap out of me. He first said, first of all, he goes, I find you offensive. You have these ideas. You're so proud of yourself for these ideas. Did you think I haven't thought about this stuff before? Do you think I'm some sort of moron? I remember this and I was taking notes. And then he said, um, and he goes, by the way, I think you're pretty proud of your background. I just get this feeling that you're really kind of, and I said, I, that's, I hope I don't. And he goes, it, it oozes out of you. You're... Arrogance oozes out of you, and it disgusts me. And I was like, "This isn't going that well." (laughs) And then I said, (laughs) "Like I said, you know." He goes, "Why did you join McKinsey?" And I said, "Because I want to counsel CEOs." He goes, "How do you think that's going?" Probably (laughs) not, not, not very well. And he goes, "You goddamn right, it's not going well." I think because I was so shocked and on it, he took he he and he told me. He said, "Listen, I just got some advice." He goes, "What I want you to do? You've done all this analysis." I want you to go spend time with the bus drivers because these people actually probably know something they'd be just because they're bus drivers and don't have an MBA or whatever the shit you have. Like he, le- he goes, they probably know a lot more than you'll ever know. So, and I did and he and it was, I remember, and he goes, I want you to come back next week and tell me what you learned. And so I did, and that this, it became a, I think, and we really got, he became a very close friend. He was still tease me. Like at, I remember one of the ones it was, we were starting to get to know each other he brought me into this room again and again it would freak the management team out because they didn't know what was going on and, it, and then he said listen he goes dom i want you to stay over it was in phoenix and i was like i want you to stay over this weekend and you know, i'm bringing my cfo and general counsel and i said oh is this like your kitchen cabinet he goes yeah exactly for my kitchen and i was like wow i'm being invited to the kitchen cab like this is how I- and he could tell i was getting excited and he goes but the reason i'm inviting you is because our babysitter's six i need you to take care of my kids and i was like oh you know you i'll never but he would i learned so you know you and those experiences i never would have got that at oxford or anywhere and that guy i and i love him he unfortunately died of alzheimer's I, he i would visit him after like he'd long retired because he what he taught me was just unbelievable There are many people you get exposed to like that, which I think just grow you. That's why I stayed.
1: If we leap it forward, I I appreciate your experience in Asia, Chairman of Asia in, in Shanghai, and promoted. And one day, the number one role, managing partner, global managing partner McKinsey, for the next nine years, plus Emeritus as well. What did you set out to achieve?
0: I had a lot of things on my mind. I did have a long term. I wanted. I wanted us to be an influential organization, and what, that sounds very vague. To help change the world, if you know what I mean. I said we have all this amazing talent. Our, how do we do that? And what I was worried about is if you. There's a lot of organizations that over time disappear. They were great organizations, but they don't become relevant. And if one of them it was actually James Gorman who was about two years ahead of me he was always like a soup he was two years ahead of me but like 10 bowls ahead of me or oh, like the super so i would talk to him and he i remember him telling me about uh, you know he was a, at morgan stanley but how there was a law firm that morgan stanley used to work with wh- which was very influential apparently they would have you know like a lunch every week with the top management of that law firm with the top management of morgan stanley It was in the 50s. And what I remember from the story was by the 90s, no one even knew who the law firm was. They were irrelevant. They were very successful. They were a profitable, successful firm, but they were irrelevant. So being relevant. And the world was changing. You know, at the time, this is where I felt Asia, all the stuff I'm talking about forces, I felt we needed to, we were very still Anglo Saxon. We needed to be in much broader. Areas we needed the way we worked should be done differently. There were a lot of orthodoxy. So I, there were a lot of things I wanted to do on that front because I thought we could have more of an impact in McKinsey. We often would not take the medicine that we would tell other clients to do. So, for example, do strategy. We don't, well, no, we don't, people say we don't do that. Yes, we do need to do that because how do you know where you're going to be over time? So that was the first thing we focused on is what type of work should we be doing? public sector work restructuring work what regions of the world should we be in that type of thing so doing that second is the point you were just alluding to which is unleashing people i think mckinsey is pretty good at unleashing people but it also still has a hierarchy so how do we give younger people more of a chance to be able to grow and drive things and you know we we're, we have an apprenticeship model or McKinsey has an apprenticeship model, but there are ways to be able to build that. I mean, one example, given the importance of Asia, if you just tried to grow your Asian capability in the normal way, it would take you 50 years. So what we did was build Asian offices in Europe where we had a lot of partners and then you could, you'd send, we'd way over hire in Asia, but send people to Europe, them to Europe. They'd get trained by European partners and they'd three years later come back to Asia and they'd be there were a lot of things on the people dimension that could be done and so forth so it was a I felt that being a relevant firm, being a firm that was in a, you know we're innovative that we take the medicine that we're giving clients and we had lots of crises and there's been lots of crises since that's the nature of it but how, how do we navigate? through those things
1: just on that dominic the first i was going to ask you is orthodoxy how do you break with it because you talked about it earlier mckinsey's is known for its innovation but it is like you said it was a pyramid yeah and you're gonna you're gonna ask everybody to break with what's been successful or not throw it all out obviously but you you changed it dramatically yeah it was pretty dramatic wasn't it
0: yeah it was to challenge it i mean one was again the nature of the work we do that. And I think we, by that I meant the doing public service work, and that really came from that Australian experience. I love the ATO. I learned a lot, I thought we had impact There were I re, real, there's fabulous leaders in the public sector, you know, you get this view in the private sector, that public sector, people are a bunch of idiots. So that's totally wrong, obviously. And it's a, but there's high impact work that we've done, that's one dimension. The second was actually how you work with clients, and this is where one of the orthodoxies were paid fees. I said, why can't we take more risk with clients?
1: Yeah, that broke the model completely.
0: That bro- Yeah, and so it was being putting fees at risk, if you will. If we don't get results, we don't get paid. If we do get results, we d- and there's obviously, you have to be careful with that and where it is, but that was a challenge. So let's move away from an hourly.
1: Why did you do it? why would you do that? Cuz you you up to that point you're you're fully retained, you're getting the work, you're getting paid. Why would you why you go for the risk part?
0: Because I felt I felt it would make us act more like owners, if you will. Like you get asked to do a project, I think we have to say let's act like we own equity in this firm and what are, what is the best and we and I think it, it can make you bolder because part of what McKinsey does I think is tell truth to power. That's what I also. We you know we would say things that were very uncomfortable, and sometimes that meant we were fired. But there was, but th- that was celebrated in the firm. It was kind of you have to say the truth, and if you don't, re- that's malpractice, and that and if it means you get taken out for as a that's okay. That that was I found that inspiring. If you have more skin in the game it, it's even more focused and you're you're you change what you're working on more more quickly you bring the right level of resources and i saw this with again companies like we you know we worked with ping insurance or uh kotak in india and they would they, they were small companies they are saying look we'd rather pay you in equity and i would try that and the firm was like are you out of your mind Do, you know we're never gonna and it would. It was a good, I think it just puts you on the same side of the table, right? You're not a service provider. You're kind of, in a small way, your are a partner. I, that was what I was trying to get. At. And again, there's, it hasn't all worked exactly, but that's changed, right, in how you do it. This notion of who we hire. So the extreme one was the no university degree, but we broadened it massively. If you recall, diversity in McKinsey in the 60s was seen as, you know, we went from Harvard to Wharton that was seen, that was diversity. You know, It was ridic- It was unbelievable how narrow we are. So let's go to non MBAs, let's hire poets, astrophysicists, others that we can bring in from a, di- a different dimension. It's the uh, development of people, how, how people grow. I think the notion of leaving McKinsey and coming back, I, I wished I'd done that in my career. So that was what I was trying to Change And I found that you learn how to do change, but it, I, every eight months I would try and change I would put this like heart paddles just <laughs> just to so let's try it, and some stuff didn't work, and for good reason, and I think that but the point is we have to keep challenging ourselves, otherwise, this gets to a broader theme of those forces at work at the very beginning where the world is moving faster all, What all that means is the metabolic rate of the world has gone up like we're on a treadmill someone's just cranking it, it's not it was going at seven kilometers an hour, it's now going at 25. And if you don't change, if your internal organization is slower than the external, you will no longer be relevant, you will die, you will disappear. And the average lifetime of an S&P 500 company in 1935 was 90 years, that which wasn't a great time to be on that 90 years. Today, the average lifetime of an s and I should say, sorry, the last time I looked at it, 2018, was 15 years. So that's because organizations don't change. And that's, a, by the way, back to that long-term capitalism and so forth. While you have a long-term view, there is, I'm amazed in an annual report that we don't have a metric for metabolic rate. How, what is the metabolic rate of Rio Tinto versus BHP versus any other organization? And that, to me, is partly you're challenging things, you're trying different things, you're moving. You don't follow every fad, but you, you're regularly challenging yourself to do it. And I think of the, as a leader, if you're not doing that, you could be taking your organization to irrelevance. Successful, but irrelevant.
1: There's always dark times as leaders, Dominic. Yeah. You're at McKinsey's and there were some pretty challenging times there, subprime comments, South Africa, et cetera, and others that, you know, well and truly in the press, yeah. how do you engage? What does a leader do? How do they act and how do you bring them forth?
0: Yeah, there's, as I said, a, a number of crises. And and what I would say is I actually think I dealt with the crises earlier in my term as managing partner than I did later. Which So my first, I guess, set of crises just literally when i became the md it was in 20, 2009 we had the, the obviously the financial crisis and that affected mckinsey it was not it was you know i always used to I was told that when things are very good or very bad it's good for mckinsey in a very narrow selfish sense of the term because people need help or they want to do things no it's not when things are bad it's bad because people can't afford it they're totally distraught you and know, all all that so we had a economic situation was challenging. Um, and just as we were coming out of that, so there was, I had to, we had to take again, the medicine we give our clients. And I remember the CFO at the time, Tom Barkin, who's a very close friend, he's, he's the Federal Reserve President in um, Richmond, in the US. Now, he would tease me, and he would say, Dom, you're the first managing partner that has negative additional award in history. For you know, because this it just doesn't, and he, and he kept every month. It was like, wow, now you're the first to have it for three months. I remember I was going, Tom, this isn't healthy. He was teasing me, but it, I didn't find it comfortable. So we had to do some things that were necessary. Take medicine to do that. And just as we were coming out, Anil Kumar, senior partner, and Rajat Gupta get arrested for insider trading, and that was devastating because that was the the integrity of the firm. How can a it's a senior partner first of all, but then a your former leader like what and and the i remember I felt there were a lot of people trying to kill us and pro- and were angry and appropriately, so that was very tough because it was existential, and it broke a lot of co- people were uncomfortable i remember the me, the thing the inflection point for me was i remember I just moved to London when this had broken out, and I was invited by Gordon Brown with a number of other business leaders just to talk with them, right? It was number 10 Downing Street. I remember that morning of the meeting in the front picture of the FT was a picture of Rajat Gupta going into the courthouse that literally, and it goes like, it's something, I don't remember the exact title, but it's like the end of McKinsey. Like It was just kind of almost clap, like, take these guys down, you know? And i was standing there going wow this is a great day to go see the prime minister and i just moved to london and i was sitting there and i was standing it was raining and i was standing out there and finally this bobby came up to me and he said like what are you doing like you, you are you going in or out like make a choice you can't just stand here and i remember i said because i was going if i maybe i shouldn't go because of the paper And i finally said god damn it i got it you got to go in and i went in and it was great Of course people had read stuff but it wasn't a you know so that to me was you lean into the correct you embrace it and you own it and you work it and you drive it and and there were a number of other ones over that nine years that i that which i did it and i think you know south africa what i wish i did well and that one was kind of it was shocking i wasn't you know and and again our Our view is we didn't actually do anything wrong you know there was we'd worked with this work. It wasn't one or zero it was kind of there was some I wish we hadn't worked with it and and done the type of arrangement that we'd had, but I didn't see that we'd done and what I should have done was move there. I should have moved there and just embrace like and own and i was i spent a lot of time there, but there's a i think you have to be fully committed and I'm not saying moving there but but you have to to hear what people are saying to see the anger. And I kind of was hoping it would go away. I think what, what leaders do is the first thing is you obviously don't like crises and then you want them to go away. And you hope that with time, and that's just wrong. You have to embrace it. And that takes energy to do that. That's the thing where in a strange way you'd think, well, I've gone through some which I think actually went quite well. I get, you know, you there there can be a arrogance, honestly, that you think you know how to it works. And and every crisis is different and you better, and you, and unfortunately, I think as a leader, expect one a year in this volatile world, expect one a year, and then you better be ready to change your calendar and your plans and how you spend your time. It's kind of like that like Henry Kissinger comment, right? It goes, I'm too busy to have a crisis next week. You know, my calendar's too full. That, that's kind of what happens. So that's my just very superficial reflection. But I think the, this is part of life now. you better And you better lean into it, embrace it. Don't hope it goes away and change what you're doing. Because if you don't, it's like a fire. It'll just get out of control.
1: Rio had a bit of a tough time, as you know.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and particularly now backyard. But you've come on board as, as chair. Where are you going to spend your time, I think? What's your focus there?
0: It's over time, and again, I so I'm thinking again, long term, right? And so I think about it in phases, and I think in the first phase, because again, I, I'm very excited and proud to be part of Rio Tinto. I think it's a, it's fundamentally a great company. It's 150 years old. It's gone through a lot. It's got incredible DNA. There's Remarkable things that Rio Tinto has done. There's obviously some tragedy and terrible things that have occurred, right? In the what you know, and Gorge, you know, we had the, the culture, sir, the Liz Broderick report, and so forth, bullying, racism, sexual harassment. So you know, mistakes. There's scars on the on on the body, if you will, too, as you go through it. But but I fundamentally believe it's a great organization, and so the first phase to me is the that were solidly out of the crisis and that's regaining social license. And it's Jakob is the one who's really driven that it's not me. I'm, I'm a late comer, but I, I want to reinforce and support that. And that's social license. Like in Australia, we lot as you, you know, better than, I think it was, I just talked to colleagues who were in Perth that couldn't wear their kit, you know, they would get spat on. I mean, it was just re- I don't need to say, you know, just really deep, deep scar tissue on on that from that experience and so our social license the culture getting this you know and then and then the four objectives you know our operating performance Rio Tinto I think was known and McKinsey we would study Rio Tinto as the benchmark for just consistent operating performance and long term this was the place and we've that's where we should be so let's get back there and that's a we're on track to to do that and let's be a growth company uh, again this is we you know we're really mining is a really really important industry as much as people may not recognize it it, it is and we are not going to do the energy transition without a significant increase in copper steel lithium all of the battery materials that we need that you need mining companies and we have a massive supply demand gaps so we're going to have to do do that so there's a it's the first phase is coming out of that crisis with momentum and dealing with the social license and the culture which i think a lot has been done on we can never it can never ever assume it's done we have to and then moving into the into growth and and performance and i'm just very keen at the end of my time i want rio tinto to be even more relevant like this is a 150 year company i'm a joining on the conveyor belt there'll be many more chairman and chairwomen or whatever coming down the road but we have we taken this to a higher place if you whether it sounds weird whatever but you know that's what we're doing and that's that's performance that's shareholder value but it's also again relevance and and importance it's been a focus on the first phase i'm spending a lot of time with the people with people in the organization i traveled a lot at mckinsey but the travel in the last year has just been because it's a you know rio's in 35 countries so you've got to be in madagascar you've got to be in mongolia you've got to it's not just australia u.s canada where and it's meeting people It's spending time with the leadership team and again i'm i'm the chair i'm not the ceo i think i think Rio in the past has gotten to difficulty because chairs have wanted to be CEOs or be and I think that I do I have no interest in that I just want to I want to help Jakob, and I want to help the management team or whatever way I can to be successful and obviously that means doesn't mean you won't criticize or challenge or push but it's that spirit of we're trying to take this organization from a to b b is a much higher and And we've got a great team. Let's do whatever we can. So a lot of time with, you know, Jakob and whatever he wants, whatever is helpful to him. A lot of time with governments, much more than I thought, just because of the supply chain geopolitics. uh, That's been a huge amount. A lot of time in Washington, a lot of time in Beijing. And I like being in both places. I I love Beijing. I I like being in Washington.
1: So you were talking about the growth of the the future from Asia and, and Africa, but also you um, talked about the new energies of the world and the future for the world and the transition. Where is Rio in that? Because obviously they've built the the reputation and the market on existing metals. Now we're looking at the future. Where where's where's the the big giants in that space as opposed to the small you now the small ones in rare earths, critical minerals, and here's these big guys, BHP, and he, uh, Valley and Rio, are you advanced? Are you ahead? Ahead of schedule? Behind schedule?
0: First of all, we're going to need steel, like this. I, the idea that iron ore is—I just—I think that's a really great asset to have. And obviously, I'm biased when I say that, Greg, But but I don't. I think it's. I feel very strongly that that because there's 900 tons of steel in a wind, tur- you know, the average wind turbine, and then and and so what I would love us to do is just be not just be relying on the iron ore which is critical that doesn't mean to diminish it we're investing even more as you know right whether it be in expanding our growth in the pilbara but also what we're doing in Simandou and what we're doing in canada with the iron ore company of canada has got some of the greenest iron ore there so we're but copper is huge we just don't we don't have anywhere near the amount of copper we need right i mean in my simple-minded way someone told me you know we we have discovered mined, processed 700 million tons of copper since we've existed as humans up to this day, it's over, over 100,000 years. If we're going to make the net zero targets by 2050, we're going to have to do the equivalent in the next 30 years, 700 million tons. So that's a, dumbing it down for someone like me to say. But that's, and by the way, you can't just buy another company. It just, that doesn't solve it.
1: Don't you see the numbers? Is that achievable, or is that pie in the sky?
0: I, I think it's very going to be very difficult. We're going to have to recycle. We're going to have to, you know, there's a whole range of. We're going to go back to old mine sites and find, just like Rio Tinto started. We we a Roman mine, and that's what that's what was done in the 1870s, and it was done very well. So I, I think it's a. My point is, it's a huge challenge and a big need for us to do it. So I, I actually think we're. We, by the way, I'm, I have a huge amount of respect for BHP, Vale, the, the big players that are out there, we, but we've got, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to go into more challenging parts of the world because these minerals are not in Switzerland. You know, they're, they're, they're in Tajikistan. They're in Central Asia. They're in Africa. And we've got to figure out how to do that in the proper ESG standard way and where it is. And so I'm, ex- I, I'm, I think that that means we're going to become even more significant uh, you know what i mean And but we have to drive it and have the right to do it but i think we're going to become more scaled uh and so it's not about dropping anything it's adding and our aluminum business which you know some people tease us and say now finally maybe the acquisition price makes but it's you know rio's the largest producer of aluminum in the western world right now and it's green aluminum right for the most part so we have some work to do in eastern australia and gladstone and so forth but in canada that's powered aluminum we have technology technology to be able to melt it effectively so we i i see that that is going to become a very important part of what we do so we're a bulk player a mining player but also a processor and i and we're in we have china and china will Remain important, no matter what happens there, long term, it's critically important to us. And North America is important to us. so anyway, I don't want to bore you with all this stuff, but I, so I'm, I'm actually very excited about the prospects. We just have to make sure we've have the social license, we have the right culture, we have the focus, and we deliver on on these growth projects that we've launched.
1: And how are you going with the ESG? zealots? They're they're, in, they're they're going to keep coming up.
0: They are. I think the thing what, what I find is, one is, um, is just being totally transparent about where what's working and what's not working, because by the way, the technology is shifting, and this is you know, we're, we're getting permitting to put solar panels uh, more difficult sometimes than to get the right to mine territories all over the world think BP has found that you know it's not there's so permitting and doing renewables is is can be I think even more challenging than the actual mining uh, operations just on that side but the other part too I found is it's push is involving well, I was just at a CSO we do these we do it in Australia we do it in North America and we do it in Europe we just did one in London on Monday so we bring people in the room and one of the things I've tried and explain is a you could go at us, like hammer us. But one of the things I sort of say is you need to help us work out some of the trade-offs here. So I'll give you an example. We have resolution in the United States, right? It's 25% of the U, it represents 25% of the U.S. copper reserves. The United States government, the Department of Defense, industry wants us to mine that like yesterday get off your ass and move on that stuff right get this is by the way if you don't get that copper how are we gonna you know make progress toward the net zero uh, we need the copper you, we have to find it but we have a that's that's the e you know we, we've we've got the environment element of it the s s side is the social side well guess what there's one first nations group out of 11 that absolutely does not want us to do it Absolutely not. So they're saying, yeah, I get that we need copper for the, but we don't want it done. It's a, you know, this site has religious significance to us and all. And so, so then my question is, well, what do you want us to do? Like, we, how do you square the circle? Because we're either going to burn the planet. I'm not that or or we meet, you decide, you help us. And what I've said is, you know what? That copper in the ground is like gold in the grass. It's going to get more and more valuable. You, so what I think we have to do is, also confront this a bit and put it on the table for the different groups and say, you need to figure this out or or some of the real, if I could just call it extreme extremists on the environment front, and they get I don't think they understand the mining industry. And my view is to them is to say, get real. And by the way, some of them fly on private jets to protest to us. uh, And I like to point that out and say, you know, it's interesting, we're actually trying to create and build the materials to be able to do this, and you don't want us to do it. Tell me how you're going to get to the net zero. I don't understand. Like just, to, and I think we have to be blunt and forceful and confront it, and not be mealy mouthed about it. So it is to your point. It does get hot. Are you selling your argument well or not? Then I I think we are doing a very poor job as an industry. I think first of all the mining industry. It globally, is being sort of in the dark because it's being, you guys rip shit out of the ground, carbon emit, blah, blah, and, and we have to say, you know what? Yeah, we do do that, but we are fundamental to this. The one of the most important challenges humanity which is the energy transition and climate change, and we're but we got to kind of get out of the darkness and talk and be proud about what we do earth science is really important material science is really really important we're not going to have this stuff and i think we've got to make that clearer to people have people understand how we so we've got a long way to go because i think we've been in this past era where we've been pillared the only place where i feel i I, and you have to tell in australia at least i feel there's some respect for my you know mining what mining has done.
1: It saves us all the time. But the, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pushback, Dominic. Don't underestimate it.
0: Well, the other thing is it's also helped transform big part of the world. Australia has transformed China. And I, whenever I'm in Shanghai or in Beijing, and I do it especially now, I always, whatever meeting I say, look out the window and look at all that steel in those buildings. That comes, that is courtesy of Western Australia that that is what us like you wouldn't have this I, I know brazil's done something too but frankly that transformation has been driven by australia and, and i this is where i think we have to be proud about that and point that out and point out again to make it and talking about car batteries into and, and say do you know how yeah, much yeah. aluminum is in a car? But do you know how much lithium is in a copper you know electric vehicles have three times more Copper than in a combustion, where do you think that comes from? How, do we, how are we going to get that material? So I think there's a huge opportunity for us as an industry to explain what we do and help people understand where it is and, and that we're at. We're, we're critical. But it's up to us. People are not going to do it for us. And there's this image issue, particularly in other parts of the world, that needs to be changed.
1: Do you, do you think Dominic, just as maybe as a generalisation, a lot of leadership just feels brown beaten, you know, corporate leadership, because we look at some of the across the board, it just they seem to be very fearful of coming out. It's going to be twisted, um, it's going to be turned on them. I can't control the media, but therefore we're losing dialogue as a result too.
0: I, I think it's a great point. I actually totally agree with you. I do. I think most leaders are afraid to be with the media because you just never know what might happen or how it turns out or how you, know, you get a you get a clip taken of what you've said that's sort of out of context so the best thing is to kind of not say anything and i i actually think the reverse we should be out there myself have always have second thoughts like i do the the thing in the ft because you never know what they're gonna pick up they're not they're looking for a sound bite they're trying but i think if we don't go out there and take some risk how's anyone going to even know what we're trying to do and and i think as long as you're Totally up on it, like you're not trying to. You're just straight up about what you're doing. You're fact based, and you push back when people challenge on things that you don't think right. I'd, I'd be aggressive like we have to be aggressive. Say that's bullshit. That's not. That's not right. That's not fair. I don't. I don't. That doesn't make sense. That's not how I see it. i or, or, by the way, this is what we do. Do you understand that? Once you come and look at what we do and see how it works, and and um, I think if we're not out there personally no one's going to be out there for us so but i agree people are nervous they're afraid people don't there's just too many cases of people being taken down because they said something off you know in a a small you know what i mean but i but i think that that's the nature of the job you got to be out there and we got to do it and we have to do it with government too we have to be on the front foot yeah talking explaining doing whatever we can because no one's going to do it for us.
1: Dominic, uh, a lot of Rio's earnings come out of Australia. Does Australia play a big enough game in the whole thinking? No, it's a major contributor to where Rio is going outside of the brand name. Are we on the world stage?
0: I think we are, but I think there's much more to be done. So, I'll Just a specific example rio and I'm, I'm sure it's the case with bhp too what one thing that i found surprising which is great is the number of countries that want rio to be there so saudi arabia now does a mining conference right they've the second they did the second one last year and it's fantastic and they're they because they recognize the importance of where it is and they bring mining ministers from 30 countries in places that we wouldn't normally operate and, and they want real bhp2 i don't want to just make it up but they want us there and i i cannot tell you the number of places including in north america where people want Rio. There's a capability there's a there's a deep respect for what the company has done it's not nothing to do with me or right? it's the, to do with the track record of what has been done people know about the automated trains uh the the perth the center the the digital twin of the mongolian mine that we have in brisbane people understand that and this is again even in africa people want you know guinea big part of it they people want rio tinto there because you guys know how to build things and you know how to do it properly you do it at scale and that's Austra- That I think pe- that, that is from the brand, and it's from the Australian experience that gives the license to do these things in other parts of the world. It's more our own things we have to deal with, which is risk, right? Operating in these places is riskier. And that's where – but, but the, demand, the reputation, I just want to say, of the organization because of what has been done – in australia is extraordinary I'll, I'll tell you when i was at tech resources i was the chair and we were doing the qb2 build right the the copper mine in chile we i remember norm Kieval telling me because we need to have rio tinto involved and I remember going why would we do that like why are we going to share rio? And he goes because rio tinto knows how to build things they have and there's few organizations in the world that know how to build things and they have a quality standard that is extraordinarily high and a track record is just good it's if you can have them in and i remember i, I didn't i was a tech tech has lots of choices they're great i'm, I'm just saying that was I remember norm keevil is one of these mentors for me a guy who you know is an, i think has had incredible he's got a long-term view he's built a great company but that, so i i think that the reputation is there I just think there's more of a role for Rio and bhP and other companies as we in this whole energy transition in the world because we're needed, and small companies don't have the platform and I, that's a an overused word, but what I mean by that is we can actually take a lot of risk we have a lot of capacity and experience to be able to build things in complicated places we have the capital base to be able to do it you need to have big operators to be able to take the risk and have the experience to be able to do things i mean one last i just you know RingCon, where we're in argentina doing this listing thing this is like this the airport that had to be built up there this is a, an unbelievable altitude i think it's the fourth highest airport in the world with the what the engineering team and that team is a team fundamentally based out of brisbane you know mark davies team charles zimmerman they've it's what they've done and the speed with which they've done it. It's extraordinary. I mean, and this is where I just, sometimes when I'm looking at construction work here in the UK and it's taking, you know, six months to do a road, I feel like let's just get real in here and they'll do it on a weekend. There's just a capacity and people see that just go, wow, this is, and this is a time in the world where we need people who know how to build things fast at scale and properly. So, that's why I think I'm I'm so excited about the future because it's a broad range of things that we can do and a broad range of capabilities that we have in the organization that have not been unleashed.
1: Leapfrog Investments, you're chairman of that. Am I going to get a return when I invest? Absolutely.
0: I mean, it's a, I'm excited about Leapfrog because I back to this capitalism thing. I think we need more private capital in emerging markets. We're not going to have Africa develop by giving them more aid. It's a drop in the bucket. We need the capital market to come in. The capital market is not gonna come in unless it gets a return. They're just not interested. And what we're trying to do at LeapFrog is bring private capital from pension funds, family offices, and others. People who want a return, they're not doing this for, they they have stakeholders. And we want them to have private equity returns. We we wanna have a 15 to 25%, 50 minimum, 25% 25% return from investments that we make, because that's how we're going to get the capital in. So it performance is, a, is essential. It's not impact, and therefore we can have less performance. It's both. And actually, they reinforce each other. The impact part is because we're focused on this emerging consumer. At the core are people with less than $11 a day, very, very poor people that actually, because of technology now, can get included in the financial system, can get healthcare can get access to energy. And there are now companies that are being formed that operate because of technology with very uh, low prices, but good margins, and they're successful. And so that's where it is, you, you, you know, I, I argue, we want you to have, we have to have very good retur- private equity returns, but focused on a population that really is missing is not included. And we can do both, and that's what we're driving. So I'm excited by that, and I'm very excited by the companies that have been formed.
1: And I think you said during your career, would you you've, what advise over three and a half thousand chief execs?
0: Yeah, I've met the. I've met three and a half thousand. I don't want exact because so, in McKinsey I had this rule of I had to see two CEOs a day or two leaders a day, because what I was worried was we were becoming. This is back to the change we. People as organizations get bigger, they tend to get focused on what their internal role is, as opposed to what we're supposed to be doing. And my view in McKinsey, you're you're serving clients. That's that is the coin of the realm. Your role? Who gives a crap? It. And so my view is, as the leader of this place, I'm going to be externally focused. I'm not going to be spending my time figuring out what the office furniture should look like in the New York office. It's it's you're out there, and so. That was why no matter what, even if I had a board meeting that was going on, I would leave the board meeting either to go visit someone or I would pick up the phone. And so every single day I talked to two CEOs, no matter what. I did I was religious. It was like a saying prayers or whatever you wanted, whatever the your thing is, doing your action it was two CEOs. I don't know how many advisors. I don't know the number of that. It was quite a lot.
1: Without giving away too much, just maybe one or two. Who made the lasting impression on you as CEOs?
0: Oh, there were so many from different dimensions. One person I would say is I I've, I've talked about Paul Keating before. He wasn't I mean, he was the treasurer. He was sort of the ultimate. That guy, even though we weren't actually talking about the project, he changed my uh, important mindset, as I said, about about Asia, long term thinking, public sector.
1: Didn't go to university either.
0: Didn't go exactly. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that exactly right. The the other one was um Chairman Lee at Samsung. I was involved. We were doing a turnaround work after the crisis in 1997. He was amazing. He he didn't speak English, and I probably met him four times. And I won't bore, but he was one who who his view. Like I, I have to just tell you a couple of things about him. So we're doing this work after the financial crisis. Samsung didn't have a CFO, so all of a sudden interest rates went from like. Eight percent to twenty-two percent. They were borrowing money in U.S. dollars, unhedged. So all of a sudden, the one depreciated. So this company, which we all know of now, was close to to the wall. So we had a project called, uh, literally, the project was was Project Won W O N, like sent, like we got to find every single one to keep this place. So we were like, literally, sell the goddamn furniture if we need. We like it was. So we're in, doing this work. And I would r- report to him, you know, this is how we're doing it. And one day I came into the Samsung headquarters, and there was this graphic on all over the place, and it had like a uh, arrows going up, like a z- like a lightning bolt going up, and it and it in Korean, and it basically it said beat Sony. That that and remember Sony in the. 90s. Walk them in and all that, yeah. They were the, yeah, they were like top of the house. Like that was just, you know, they were the Apple of today, right? That was. That's right, yeah. And I and this is Samsung. We're nearly, we're at the wall. And he's got these signs out there going, beat Sony. And I I literally walked in, about two toothbrush, and I said, Chairman Lee, I said, what? I literally said, what the hell are these signs? And he looked at me and he, translation, and and he says, what are you talking about? I said, what are you doing putting a sign like, beat Sony? And we're not even, we're in the basement. We're not. And then he literally came over to me and he, I remember he tapped my hand and then he spoke. And what a base translation came back, he goes, he goes, Don, that's why I never asked you for advice. And I said, What are you? And he goes, Listen, if you think you're going to motivate people by telling them we're going to save everyone, you motivate people by going, for, if we get through this, if we, get through this crisis we can beat any company on earth that's the message i'm giving so that that was a you know kind of a mindset shift too right about ambition and how you mobilize people and the other thing he said to me because we were involved in the when they moved from a, you know samsung products were low end products at that time right a lot of people they would be in walmart and his view was we're going to change this is Samsung's going to become a high-end brand and all of this stuff. And I remember ha- having one of these conversations with him again saying, it's very difficult to do this. It takes a long time. That's right. I just want you to know the chat. And I went on and on like this. And f- he did this. He goes, he said, he said, he goes, do you know our history? And I said, pretty well. He goes, I don't think you do. Do you know what our first business was? I said, no. He goes, so you don't know our history. It was yeast. We made yeast. So I think we know how to transform ourselves boy you know it was kind of but that guy i loved him because he he was elite you know he was a an amazing person in terms of how how he 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 drove things larry think even though i didn't work direct like he, i was more in the managing director role at that time but just his he was part of this group on long-term capitalism uh that we had of how to think get the capital markets to work that way his talent views his kind of his energy and how he focused on things, his courage to to drive things. Anyhow, those are just some people. I'm 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 probably. Met. Then there were the people like John Teats, Dial Corporation. No university background. You know, he 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 told me. I remember he said, "You know, I had to stop school at grade eight because my parents died in a fire. I had to take care of my siblings, so I had to work." But he he's like a learn he's always reading he's learned. you know what i mean that i can i can see him right in front of me right now just again get beating me around the head and doing stuff so there's there's a lot of i know i'm missing some andrew mckenzie is a guy i like again i i used to meet him when i was at mckenzie and he was just talking about what he wanted to do and drive how he wanted to drive things what he was doing on diversity right people laughed at him I'm going to go 40, 40, 20. Like, I just, he moved. Another guy uh, was John Prescott. You know, it's an old debt because I, I did a, a CEO time thing and I thought I was being fired from the firm. I learned what a CEO was like because I, it was, I was mainly working with a secretary. It was not, but I was literally looking at what it was like, like a day to day for a CEO. That was an unbelievable experience. Anyhow, sorry, I'm, going, I'm just rambling here. These are, you know, Jamie Diamond. I remember him telling me that if you we were talking about things, by the way, a couple of things, these are again, they're learnings for me. He said, if you think you or your firm can out-analyze me, go home. And, I, and he goes, I, and, I, and he looked at me and I was like, and he goes, on Saturdays, I read mortgage tables for fun. And I was like, okay. I've got it. And then he said, second point, and these are from many different meetings and so forth. But he said, you guys, you like to, you, you you think that you make decisions, you like to make decisions with 90% confidence facts. I get it. I like the fact that you analyze stuff. But in this world that's moving faster and is more volatile, sometimes we have to make decisions with 60% or sometimes 40%. And then if you're wrong, you just change. And he said, you, and he'd hired a guy from McKinsey and Strategy, who he, who is a superstar. I was really upset that he'd left. And he used to tease, he said, so this guy would come in to their executive committee and say, you know, look, we've done some work and our hypothesis is we should go this way. And Jim and I go, well, what do you mean by your hypothesis? He goes, well, it's, you know, we have to do more work to prove it up. But that's what we think it is. And Jim and I says, how about this? We actually think that's the right thing to do so we're going to do it and this guy freaked out and said you can't that's malpra you can't do that because we haven't got the analysis done and he and he said watch me we're going to do it and he, he said, it it drove the and they did it right and he and it you know so it's this you it's learning about leadership or management from different people and it's it you know another person not even not from mckinsey who i learned a lot from his name is Don Cameron, but his he changed his name to Zulu Khan. He was a, worked in a sawmill in northern British Columbia in Fort Nelson, Takama, Forest Products. He's about six foot eight, had a beard in the shape of a, a zigzag, like a like a zoo, what he thought I think was a Zulu warrior wore overalls all the time. And he, I worked in this sawmill, and the story I just want to say is. There was going to be—he was the shop steward. There was going to be a strike, and this was important. Like I needed the job, and all. This, and I was actually worried we're going to raise the labor costs, and there was, you know, we're going to take this. This mill will get shut down. We're not competitive with the, with the Sc- Scandinavian ones. And I remember in this meeting, it, every he said, "Okay, we're going to we're, we're going for the strike." Does anyone dissent on this? Right? And everyone had their hands down. He's like this big. So I put my hand up and said, "I don't think we should do it." And I explained why right everyone was looking at me and then he said to me he said dom how would you like to walk on your kneecaps for the rest of your life and i said uh i actually would not prefer to do that and he goes and you shut the f up and i said i got it i thought i thought you really wanted an opinion he goes no you don't understand we've already made our decision and we need alignment and if you aren't aligned then maybe you're going to have a fall in one of the chippers uh, one of the like he was but he was sort of smiling and I went I actually thought I should quit I said this guy's gonna hunt me down or you know I've never seen this and he actually became a very good friend like again a guy he was actually he said listen I know I I'm not an idiot I understand the, this is not about that this is about about a power dynamic that's going on with the management this is long since before you were here and maybe before you talk you should ask questions that's my point. You know what I mean. It was a so here was this guy who was a, a rough, but I've never I can see him in front of me right now, just the same You know, a frightening guy, but a but actually very like a thoughtful guy about what he was actually trying to get done. So in negotiations, I <laughs> learned something from him.
1: <laughs> you you you've been in the inner sanctum of most CEO offices than anyone else. What? Would you want CEOs or encourage CEOs to think about now in this troubled times that we'd started off in our conversation?
0: I think a couple of things. I think it, this if there's ever a time for a voice from business in this kind of crazy period of time where we don't have enough long leadership, long-term leadership, long leadership, we need people to speak up, even if it's uncomfortable to say what they think. Be open about whether you're being, you know, it's selfish for your company, you need to have a voice. I think it's very important to speak up and have courage. It's easy to keep your head down. It's better, people will say, because it's so volatile, and you never know what you might. I think it's important to stick your head above the parapet and say something. And I think it's, it's even more critical than it ever has been to do it. So to stand up. I think the second thing is the challenge your orthodoxies don't assume that what has worked before is going to work ahead be open to be curious about ideas be comfortable that you may have to do things differently and the third is keep your energy because this is going to be not a it's a way harder role now than i think it was 10 years ago and it'll be even harder 10 years from now and this is not an issue about managing your time, it's managing your energy. And how do you keep your alertness, your ability to absorb? Because I think mistakes get made when you're tired, you're frustrated, you're exhausted at the end of a day or long flights or, and just make sure you manage your energy because it's, you, you, it's relentless and, 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 and know how to recover. So, you have that energy. So, those would be three aspects, I would I'd say.
1: And, Dominic, if you're looking back at that young man who was in the back of the four wheel drive with Eddie Amin all those years ago, what advice would you give him now?
0: Follow your instincts and don't put barriers in front of yourself because of what you think other people do. Take, take risk, follow your intuition. Because, again, in that car, I, I went in that car because I liked Land Rovers and I wanted to play. I did not want to be sitting beside Edi Amin. I mean, I don't but but that was, a, in retrospect, it was a good experience. Uh, and so I th- that what's going to my mind is you take risk, speak up, try things. When people say, Oh, I think that's a really bad idea. That, that, that's not good for your career. Or they make it more about I'm not sure that's right for you, that I would my radar would go up, Well, maybe this is something and every time and it's not always worked out i've made many as you know many mistakes i've screwed up I've, there's things i wish i hadn't done but i found that when i've been really nervous about it's a big decision and it's you people are telling you be careful like going to china that business ambassador i had so many people saying this is it's impossible you can't do it and i actually thought you know it probably is i'm not you got, I'm so grateful for my, just my own, that I did it because you, you, you figure it out. So, and that's part, that's sort of an intuition and often the riskier ones go with your gut, your, or your heart, just take the risk, plunge.
1: On that, Dominic, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciated.
0: No, thank you. Really enjoyed the discussion with you.
1: You have been listening to No Limitations.